you could make an argument that the book was merely fantasy and puffery. As we know, there's a lot of rap lyrics that are purely for that, for entertainment purposes, that rappers brag and exaggerate about their money, their lifestyle, whether it's money, women, clothes, or whether it's violent acts that may or may never occur. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13th, 1996, he'd sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. 27 years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case and scored several firsts. I was the first journalist to get the now infamous beatdown video at the MGM Grand. The first to get the search warrant affidavit that pointed to Orlando Anderson, and KPD for that matter, as being responsible for Tupac's murder. I was also the first and only journalist to get interviews with the original team of Las Vegas Metro investigators. 27 years later, once again, an exclusive. I exclusively interview now retired Las Vegas homicide detective Brent Becker. Nothing is off the table. I'm Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Laying down the law. Bordeaux, France, Houston, Texas, Las Vegas, Nevada. Those are just a few of the places where I've reported from inside a courtroom. But the very first time I was in a courtroom was in San Diego, California. I was in high school at the time. No, I wasn't in any trouble. In fact, I was interning at the San Diego City Attorney's Office. I was considering becoming a lawyer. However, I remember coming home one day after a day of listening to conflicting testimony and I said to my mother, so many people are lying all the time. I don't think I wanna be a lawyer. So I went on to get a degree in journalism, although I'm not saying that life as a reporter is fabulous free. I know people have lied to me in the process of reporting this case and I have a good reason to believe that they've lied to authorities as well. Could now be the moment of truth for Keefe D. There's never been a time since I began producing this podcast in 2021 have I had so many questions come in from listeners about whether the truth of this case will now be revealed because of Keefe D's looming trial. I have a lot of questions myself about what we should all expect regarding what's next as the case winds its way through the criminal justice system. So once again, this episode of Lennon Ozizwe reporting Tupac's murder was his case, we're going to take a detour. For this episode, I'm not going to pepper retired homicide detective Brent Becker with legal questions better answered by, and he would say so himself, an attorney. I am pleased to say, dear listeners, a lawyer is in the house, not just any attorney. Michael Triano was pretty much born to be a lawyer and raised in Las Vegas. For the past 15 years, his focus has been criminal defense, from misdemeanors to murder. He's known to include Tupac on his playlist 
although he makes a distinction between the music and the man. How old were you when Tupac passed away? So that was 1996 of September, is that correct? Yes. So that would mean that I would be uh, 13 years old. Wow. Do you remember when you found out that he'd been shot? Not exactly. For whatever reason, and I remember where I was when Biggie got shot, which was obviously shortly thereafter, um, which I wasn't even really a Biggie fan at the time. I listened to basically mostly West Coast music because, A, we didn't have the type of access we now have now as far as the Internet is concerned to just hear music worldwide. And as hip hop went at that time, it was East Coast, West Coast. And I just kind of started off listening to initially Bone Thugs and Harmony. And then that's how I learned about Easy e because Easy e produced them. And then that's how I learned about NWA. And then things just kind of spread from there. It's been years then since you were, you know, you're 13. Did you think it would take so long to get to where we are now? I mean, honestly, at 13, it was probably the last thing on my mind uh, about the, you know, what the repercussions of a murder. Just it was more of a pop culture thing, right? You're a teenager, you listen to music. Oh, this is crazy. This is sad. Um, I did have aspirations starting as early as sixth grade, so probably right around that or a little bit before that of being a criminal defense attorney. I would started telling people that around the sixth grade, which is uh, weird, but 100% uh, verifiably true. Uh, but no, uh, at 13, I had no idea the consequences of, of you know people's actions uh, regarding that and where this case would, would go. And did you ever think that we would get here in terms of somebody being held responsible, somebody being indicted, somebody now behind bars and accused of being part of killing Tupac? I mean, once you know the documentary started coming out, uh, I would say probably about college, I went to one of the main ones in, in the movie theaters, uh, went through the whole story and, and started re reaching that Elvis level where people were claiming he was in Jamaica, Africa, or God knows where. Uh, I had no thoughts that this would anybody would ever uh, be charged with this once it, once it gets that far along. So then in July, you hear about the search warrant. What was your reaction? I thought it was intriguing because now, uh, being much older, uh, 40 years old, uh, experienced in life and experienced specifically in the law and criminal defense matters. Police do make mistakes. It happens. And that's my job to look into those and point those out and put together a vigorous defense for my clients. But at the same time, a case this old with international media attention, I know well enough to know that at least the law enforcement out here, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and the Clark County District Attorney's Office probably dotted every I across every T possible to at least know that whatever they were looking for was in there. Now, whether that's going to lead to a conviction, that's a whole other story, but that was quite intriguing that they got enough uh, information to put before a judge for the judge to sign off on that and have a probable cause for whatever the heck they were looking for. We still don't know at this time. We can only suspect. 
take me through in terms of the pace of the grand jury, the witnesses who were called, and the ultimate outcome, just simply your take. Sure. So I'll kind of go in reverse order, if that's okay. As far as the ultimate outcome is concerned, there's an old saying, uh, and it's rings true for a reason. The saying is that you can indict a ham sandwich, meaning that right. uh, going to a grand jury, it's it's a one-sided process. Yes, a accused uh, potentially defendant has the ability to testify at a grand jury, but that is extremely rare. Uh, at least here in Clark County, his defense attorney or her defense attorney can't even be in the room to assist their client. The defense attorney doesn't be, is not able to ask any questions. Uh, and if you do have any evidence, exculpatory evidence, it's up to the prosecutor whether or not he or she wants to uh, bring that to the grand jury's attention. So that the saying rings true if you think about it, just a standing still, nothing, indict a ham sandwich. So that doesn't surprise me. All kinds of cases uh, that are utterly shocking and almost useless uh, get through the grand jury process. And I've read hundreds, if not thousands, of those transcripts over my 15 years doing this. As far as the grand jury transcripts themselves, there's still some uh, missing transcripts that have not been filed and made public record. So I'm not aware of the totality or at least the entire transcripts until those are filed, um, or at least uh, when I reference them within the last uh, week or so and spoke to some colleagues and whatnot. Uh, but uh, as we know, the only person that was allegedly in that vehicle that evening is the defendant. All other uh, suspects who's alive, right? Or his cousin, Orlando Anderson, and the other gentlemen are, are all deceased. Um, so it sounds like that this is based off on a lot of hearsay that there is another individual who had a connection to death row and or Mob Piru, which is essentially their argument is that they were one of the same, Is was told by one of the deceased that he was the shooter in the vehicle, but that's what we call hearsay in the law. So it's gonna be interesting to see how they got around that. They had an individual testify that he saw Tupac on the road that evening and waved and said he was a fan. And Tupac apparently said, hey, come follow us to the club. And he took one of the last known pictures of Mr. Shakur when he was still alive. Leonard uh, Jefferson. Had... All right, you got it, you got it. Um, they've got, um, a former associate of Mr. Shakur, at least his rap name was uh, Edi Amin. He testified as well. He was uh, a witness that, that night. Correct, correct. I believe he said that he saw an arm coming out of the uh, vehicle, but could not identify anybody. He he came to Tupac's aid. Police, obviously not knowing who was a witness and who was a victim um, or who was a perpetrator apparently put him in cuffs or at least detained him momentarily while him and Suge Knight were apparently trying to, you know, ask the police and whoever was around to render aid to Mr. Shakur. There was, I believe, another <laughs> officer who was one of the first ones on the scene that, that testified as well. And you bring up hearsay. And that was my question, because, again, it's my understanding that somebody who was affiliated and hung out with Keefe D, Orlando, the folks in the car overall, he's the one who said quite a bit during the grand jury hearing, and it was quite a bit of hearsay. I thought, 
you know, I've heard you can have hearsay, you can't. What is the law in a grand jury in Clark County? They need to base their information on reliable, admissible, admissible evidence. So uh, it's going to be interesting when uh, the defense team gets together and challenges the grand jury process, and which is typically done via a pretrial writ of habeas corpus, uh, or what I tell clients in layman terms, essentially you're asking the court to dismiss the case or, you know, a charge or some of the charges. A motion to dismiss. Okay. Yeah, pretrial writ of habeas corpus is the uh, exact verbiage. Um, so it's not titled motion to dismiss, but uh, in, in layman's terms, that's kind of the effective purpose. You're saying, Judge, there was either misconduct at the grand jury based on A, B, C, and D, or there was lacking evidence based on these other things. There's multiple avenues in which to attack the grand jury process via that pretrial writ. As far as I know, the last I heard, Keefe does have an attorney, and it's an attorney he's had for many years because at one point I tried to interview his nephew, Orlando, and went to that office to try and interview him, and he came and he later said he wouldn't do it. And I later wrote an article about Vibe after Orlando was mur murdered. So as far as I know, Edie Ami, uh, sorry, Edie Fall is his attorney at this point. I've heard him, I heard a report from AP saying that he was going to help him in finding a Nevada attorney. What is that process like? Well. As you read in, in the AP, that's at least the what the rumor mill says or what's being reported. So if Mr. Fall wanted to actually litigate the case here in Nevada and make appearances on Mr. Davis's behalf and appear before the court, then he needs to find local counsel that'll associate with him and he'll have to file a petition to the Nevada Supreme Court to be allowed on this specific case, and we call that pro hoc vice. And once they go through that process and procedure, and the court accepts that, then he could appear for this particular case uh, with in-state counsel uh, as the attorney. But based upon at least the article I read, that it's probably the same one that you're referencing through the AP, it sounded as if he was being tasked, that being Mr. Fall, in locating counsel. So I don't know if that right. means that he's locating it to associate with them and handle the case himself, or he's just being tasked to find competent legal counsel uh, that he could recommend to Mr. Davis since they have a longstanding relationship. Right. No, it, it, I saw some reports saying, you know, just as you're saying, that it seemed like he was going to be representing him, but others in, indeed seem to say otherwise. But I did try to call the office and have not had a response so far. I'm sure they're busy with a lot of other things. And I do remember when Suge Knight came to speak to the Las Vegas Metro Metropolitan Police Department, the, the first and only time he was accompanied by David Kenner from California, and uh, what's his name? Ch Chertoff. I should know him because he, we had an encounter. But he was, and he was a local former prosecutor, defense attorney. So it's a fairly normal thing. When you heard about Chesnoff, Chesnoff, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he's the 
prominent uh, defense attorney here in Vegas and, and nationwide, David Chesnoff. Correct. Uh, I had a not exceptionally pleasant encounter with him, but one that I will never forget uh, oh. at Suge Knight's probation. So October 4th, the, there was a continuance. What do you see from, what does that mean to you when you heard that? Because he said that he think, had an attorney. Yeah, that, that part seems fairly straightforward, at least of what's being reported. Or he stated in open court that he has an attorney out of California and he needs two weeks either to get him out here or do the things that we just discussed, which is pro hoc vice in to appear or give him counsel on recommendations for local counsel. Now, have you heard of Edie Fall? Um, not prior to that date, but I've done some uh, research and it looks like he's done some significant cases in his career. Indeed, he is prominent in certainly California circles. I, I've heard his name way before I even went to his office. What's that going to cost? What's the average cost for, let's say, Keefe just has an attorney in Clark County representing him? What's the ballpark? That's, <laughs> that is an extremely difficult question to answer. I'd say first and foremost that a lot of people assume media cases that attorneys are chomping at the bit to do for free or pro bono. Right. Uh, that's not typically the case. Now, this very likely will be the exception, or maybe it won't. I don't know uh, Mr. Davis's finances, uh, but this is, again, a historic case, Vegas-wise. Uh, it's very old, and it's not just national. It's going to be an international story, and there's going to be a lot of stories and movies and documentaries and podcasts and all kinds of things that are currently being made. We're on one right now and they're going to continue to be made down the line. So although I typically chuckle when people say, hey, it's going to be for free because it's in the media um, or I've been reached out on cases that have some media exposure, people automatically expect that you're going to do it for free. That's really not the case. Most attorneys value their time. They need to be paid. They're running a business. Um, but this might be the exception as far as the ballpark. I mean, it could go anywhere from pro bono to million plus. I mean, if you really think about the financial commitment, if we're talking about somebody not doing it pro bono, I, I don't know how you would, I mean, probably less, less than 250,000 to a million. I mean, you're going to want a team. And it's not just going to be the attorneys in the courtroom. You're going to want, just as the Clark County District Attorney has a team of lawyers, like 100 plus. Uh, now, not everyone's going to work this case, obviously, but they have sure. resources. They have private yeah, investigators. They have trial attorneys that will be in court. They have attorneys researching. They have investigators. They have law, I mean, plus law enforcement. I mean, their resources are essentially unlimited, especially in a case like this. So you're going to either need to come up with an extreme amount of money or an attorney and attorneys that are willing to come together on a team and put their, their time and, and effort in this in order to reach a good result for Mr. Davis. Well, I'm not asking you to work pro bono, but I'm going to ask you if you were, and, and as far as I know, no one's come and asked you to do so in this case. But right now, if you were involved in the case, based on what you know, I understand. What would you be thinking about? What would you want to be instructing your client? Uh, instructing my client is to, like Shut any up. client, 
don't don't talk to anybody other than myself or potentially our investigators who are going to be on the team and who are wrapped with that cloth of attorney-client privilege. Uh, tell them to be, be calm. Uh, and it's tough in a situation like this. I'd imagine this is shocking to him in the highest extent, like it is most of my clients, uh, especially with older cold cases that end up getting arrested. So be calm and don't speak to anybody. Uh, don't speak to the media. Uh, I know that a lot of times in these cases, media will attempt to go to the jails and visit and see if uh, defendants will speak to them. And some have. Uh, we have a pretty high profile case in Vegas going on right now where a journalist was murdered uh, by right. a local politician. And he, while he was still being represented uh, by counsel, because currently he's his own lawyer, because uh, coincidentally, he is an attorney or was. I don't know if he's been disbarred yet, but either way, he went through law school um, and was giving media inter interviews while he was represented by uh, counsel. So very, very, very foolish to speak to the media. Your attorney is there for a reason, and he or she is your microphone when you need to have one, if at all. Right. That I did hear from a very good source that even after the search warrant, he was considering doing an interview. So, yes, I'm, and I was actually shocked, but I can understand why you would want your client to keep his or her mouth shut. What about the impact of all these interviews that he's done already? They can't be erased retroactively. So mm -hmm. as a defense attorney, how do you look at just, let's say, the, the TV interviews? Well, I mean, social media. It, 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 and I'm not familiar with each and every one, so I just want to be very clear um, sure. to the listeners that I, I'm not talking directly, but just in the general sense, if your client gave a voluntary interview, we're not talking about police here, that's a whole separate issue, but if a person wants to, you know, have an interview with them, camera, microphone, TV, podcast, whatever, and voluntarily sit down and speak about something in police and, and or the DA's office gets a hold of that, uh, that's pretty wide open as far as fair game. Does that mean it's going to get in? No, there's other steps and avenues. But the first thing is when you talk about interviews or admissions is what was the statement voluntary? And when it's not dealing with police, then generally it's going to be voluntary. Was it knowing? Uh, I would assume that the interviews we're talking about weren't recorded in secret, but something that he volunteered to do. So once you get past that aspect of it, then there's going to be a challenge as far as the, the relevance. There's going to, they're going to argue about portions of the interviews that should be removed and not presented in evidence. And it's going to be a lot of nickel and diming, if you will, but in a very serious sense for Mr. Davis. And that would happen before even going to trial, if they go to trial. Yeah, so you're generally not going to wait to trial to get evidence excluded. Now, sometimes strategically from a criminal defense standpoint, uh, we have to kind of sit on our hands and know that there's a piece or pieces of evidence that the state's going to have trouble getting in uh, based upon certain foundational issues or objections that uh, you are ready for. And you have to do that, but uh, you got to roll with the punches because if the judge denies it, then it's coming in and you better make sure that that wasn't your entire game plan through the 
trial that a piece of evidence was going to get excluded that you decided to wait the trial. Um, in a case like this, there's probably going to be dozens upon dozens of motion in limines or basically a pretrial motion in an attempt to exclude evidence, but there's also motion limines where you try to preclude evidence or include evidence, excuse me, prior to trial so that you're not waiting to fight it at trial and, and have those kind of surprises that I just mentioned. So that's going to probably be flying both ways from the defense and the state is motion limines to try to get evidence rule that's going to be included so everybody knows what's already going to be allowed in trial as well as things that are going to be excluded. Well, I know there's a prominent YouTuber who said that he helped break the case wide open. I would imagine that as a defense attorney and also the prosecution, you would want to be comparing what was said, comparing what was said like to the Las Vegas Police Department, comparing that to what's said on social media. And one thing I found really fascinating as somebody who covered the case 27 years ago is that a lot of the witnesses who would not talk to the police have talked extensively on social media. But again, that would give you as a defense attorney more material to work with. How soon are you going to be, if you were the defense attorney, how soon do you start to get discovery? So typically someone is going to have to confirm first. So he does not have an attorney that's appeared before the court. So that's likely right. not going to happen until somebody confirms and then he's, he's arraigned. And then once he's arraigned, then the prosecution should be ready. I anticipate they will be ready to say, Hey, we need a, you know, whatever, one terabyte hard drive um, delivered. Uh, it, it, it should be here to here to go again on a case like this. I'd fully expect the Clark County District Attorney's Office to be well prepared for at least that initial step to provide a significant amount of uh, discovery to defense uh, upon the starting of the case. And at this point, the arraignment is set for October 19th. Now, what do you expect since this was there was a continuance? What? Mm -hmm. Do you expect and what should we expect as watch, you know, we're watching all this to see at that uh, arraignment? We're well, going to assume that he does have a, a lawyer and he's good to go. I was going to say two weeks is a long time, but in a lot of senses, it's, it's not. Uh, and back to your financial question here, who's going to take this for what, for pro bono, for discounted fee, for a you know, legitimate fee. And like I said, I easily can see this being at least a million dollars worth of legal defense when you're going back 30 years. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if the, he still doesn't have an attorney and needs more time. Uh, but if for the moment, let's assume that uh, this is a priority and they get this out of the way and they get it, they get attorneys, they figure out the financials and all that stuff within the two week period and his attorney or attorneys is there ready to rock and roll, the hearing should be pretty simplistic. Uh, he'll enter a not guilty plea. He'll have a decision to invoke his right to a speedy trial within 60 days, which I'd imagine he would waive because the prosecution and the police have had a, what, 27-year head start on formulating this case. That's pretty lengthy. I would imagine that his attorneys and I would certainly advise to waive his right to a speedy trial unless they have a whole heck of a lot of information that you and I don't have uh, so that we have ample time to put together our own investigation 
and our experts to counteract 27 years of law enforcement effort to prosecute this man. Can you walk me through the process of what normally would happen at this point? He's in jail, no bail. What next? Sure. So in this particular case, an indictment came through and basically there's a judge who hears the indictment return and the prosecution. Uh, and then at that point, there's no defense attorney, generally no defendant either. Uh, what will happen is the judge in this particular circumstance ruled that no bail at that time, but he has yet to have a bail hearing. So Mr. Davis is entitled to a bail hearing. So that will happen. And essentially after he enters his not guilty plea, a lot of times in Clark County, and I'm assuming in courts all across the nation that there's bail argued, whether written or verbally off the cuff in court to get the process moving. But in the case of this nature, that won't happen. So his counsel will file a lengthy bail motion. The prosecution will then file a opposition to that. And then the judge likely will then order a hearing or the state will propose a hearing to have the lead detective testify uh, regarding the facts of the case to kind of lay out almost as a preview to the trial what evidence they have in making that determination. And then at that point, the judge will decide either no bail remains or a significant amount of bail. Uh, I don't think it's going to be anywhere uh, in between. It's going to be either very high or no bail at all, likely going to be no bail. Uh, but then again, we there's a lot of miss, missing pieces that we don't have. And I'm sure when he does find counsel, they're going to look into that and make a very strong argument to have him released due to how old this case is, due to his lack of at least recent criminal history, ties to the communities, things of that nature. But if uh, I had to put money on it, I'd, I'd say that he's going to stay in. And not being the expert you are, that's what I've been saying to folks as well. At what point would be the possibility of looking at a plea deal? I don't believe there's going to be plea, excuse me, I don't believe there's going to be a plea deal in this case. I don't really? see any incentives. No, I don't see any incentive for Clark County District Attorney's Office. I mean, he's already 60 years old, and they filed a murder charge against him. And this, we're assuming here, based upon the press conferences and some of the tidbits that are coming out, that they are characterizing or uh, Mr. Davis as the uh, the shot caller. That he is the one who arranged the firearm to be there. He is the one that organized his cousin, Mr. Uh, Orlando and the other co-conspirators to get in the car to find and hunt down uh, Mr. Shakur and take him out uh, as as revenge as part of uh, disrespect and the fight that happened earlier and the ongoing gang war uh, between the, the Crips and the Bloods. And can, can you explain that if or you know in your words that if a group of people, this quartet, goes out to kill somebody, everybody is culpable for murder. Correct. And in, in the very broad general sense. Now, they're going to tie it based upon their motive, based upon uh, Mr. Anderson being attacked by Mr. Shakur and their crew. They're going to bring in the gang culture and how that is a necessity to survive in the gang culture that you can't let slights like getting jumped 
go by the wayside and let bygones be bygones. And they're going to point out that each and every individual in that car was associated with that gang, was aware of Mr. Anderson being jumped, and pursuant to the orders of Mr. Davis, as they're characterizing the shot caller, uh, went you know, went and hunted him down for, for one sole purpose. So it doesn't matter if you're the driver, the lookout guy, the guy that is in charge of the music and, and the vehicle playing the radio. Uh, they're, they're circling them all as equal actors absent whether or not one trigger was pulled. He escapes prosecution for this case. He had made a proffer agreement earlier he made a deal to tell information about this case in exchange for not being busted on a drug charge. Let's say for some reason he's not convicted for this. What about that proffer? Well, I guess my first question is who provided the proffer? Was it the Los Angeles Police Department? Was it Metro? Yes. Was it the feds? Los Angeles. And I don't know if uh, Las Vegas is going to be tied to that ag agreement. Uh, so that, that may or may not be fair game. Maybe they coordinated with uh, Las Vegas to ensure that that couldn't be part of it. He may have violated the agreement by not telling the whole truth. That's one way that they can get around it. Uh, he may have violated it by writing the book. Uh, again, the proof is in the pudding as far as that proffer. And that's going to be a, a very interesting question surrounding that or if they even need it quite frankly and imagine that the, the biggest thing that they're trying to do and again just so the audience is aware we're dealing with very minimal facts here to make an, uh, an analysis but if we're talking about his book and the admissions and can they put him in las vegas and you know that that's kind of where they're going to be looking at so as far as from a defense standpoint i think the first thing you need to do is put again put together your own investigation it sounds like the metro has enough to at least put him in las vegas that night so i don't know if there's going to be a way that the his defense team can disprove that after all these years uh once they have him here in las vegas do they have proof that he's at the mgm with the other individuals and associates that he's known to associate with that were apparently in that vehicle and who's the one that produced and provided this gun when where why and how those are all important questions. And what about this book? Uh, is every, is it going to be admissible? It's his own words. Logically, that would sound right, but there's going to be certain challenges because just your own words and or potential admissions is not enough. They need more evidence to tie him to the actual crime. You can make an argument that the book was merely fantasy and puffery. As we know, there's a lot of rap lyrics that are purely for that, for entertainment purposes, that rappers brag and exaggerate about their money, their lifestyle, whether it's money, women, clothes, or whether it's violent acts that may or may never occur. It's a form of, of art like any other music. What about the impact of so many witnesses that are gone, who passed away? Orlando passed away within two years of Tupac's murder. There are many other people who were in the death row entourage who died. And of course, the other three occupants of the white Cadillac have passed away. What kind of impact does that have? Large. I mean, 
cases don't get easier to prosecute as they age. I mean, that's that's fairly well known. You talk to any defense attorney or I guess more importantly, a prosecutor, you want to get on it. That's why they have shows like the first 48. Those first 24, 48 hours are significant in a homicide investigation. And again, going back to 1996 when it occurred, we don't have nearly the amount of technology and surveillance that we have available today. So maybe that can change. You commit a crime today, everything can be preserved. Uh, your, you know, your phone, your tracking calls. Uh, we have data now. I mean, I, I can't even imagine thinking back in 1996 the type of things that we have today, like the iPhone. I mean, I certainly couldn't envision that you and I would be doing a podcast several hundred miles away on on a phone. Right. <laughs> Well, and even so, social media, I mean, they could have posted, mm-hmm. we're in Vegas tonight or whatever, everybody. Oh, and you're in, in, and you're right. I, I, that's what's crazy about it is I see that daily in my cases where my clients, especially the younger ones, have no idea that uh, everything is safe. Uh, you know, one of the apps is called Snapchat where you post a story and it disappears right. like in a five minutes or five hours or only certain people can see it. And then when we have meetings at my office to go over the, you know, apparently evidence against them, the crime, it's their own videos. And they're just like jaw drops. Well, I thought it disappeared. It's like, no, 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 all these companies keep it and preserve it. And law enforcement continually and routinely sends in requests, whether it's subpoenas or, or search warrants um, for their own devices and things of that nature. And the companies hand it over. They can get it from your phone. Even if you deleted it, they can get it from the company. And Oh, I, I'd imagine if this ha- this exact story and fact pattern happened this Friday night in Vegas, everybody, Tupac, his whole crew, everybody would have been all over social media, videos, posting it. And it's essentially you're diagramming your entire crime for law enforcement. It's, it's, it's wild. And now all we have is the photo from Leonard Jefferson, that one last photo. So what a contrast. It's it's as if, and I, I have thought this not even just in relationship to this case, it's like we're our own big brother. We're our own, we're snitching on ourselves with the technology. Yes. Oh, a- a- absolutely. That's why it's, it, it's almost laughable that people literally broadcast their own crimes. I mean, you go to YouTube, you go to Instagram, you go to Twitter. I mean, we have a, a case right now uh two minors a 16 and a 17 year old uh filmed and provided whether directly on social media or sent it to somebody because law enforcement got their hands on it and that was the only reason they did is through another source they filmed themselves basically going on a rampage and they stole one or two cars attempted to and or hit one or two pedestrians and then eventually Drove and the whole thing is like point of view. You see it coming. You hear them into the back of a retired uh, police chief or sheriff out of California while he was minding his own business, riding a bicycle, and said, "Hit his ass." And they they did. They hit him, and he flew up. And they turned the camera. I mean, you saw the entire crime. It was tragic. It was disgusting. And and they bragged um, and, and and laughed about it. And now they're both sitting in prison or excuse me in jail. Uh, being tried as adults for murder. 
what a difference 27 years makes because if it were 27 years ago, everybody in the entourage would have had their cameras going. Everybody who passed by Tupac would have had their cameras going. It, and I do still persistently get questions about people saying it's Las Vegas, wasn't there surveillance? And there just really wasn't as much surveillance then as there is today. No, I mean, the only, I'm sure there's more that isn't as relevant, relevant, but that Metro is preserved, but all the evidence and or surveillance, excuse me, that we've all seen in TV, movies, documentaries for the years where you see uh, Mr. Shakur and his entourage kicking and hitting Mr. Anderson and, and those individuals, we see Mr. Shakur and his entourage, um, and I believe Shug Knight, you know, pacing through the casino, pushing through those front doors. If you're familiar with the MGM brand, you've ever been inside there and you watch the video, you know exactly the location because they have a large, or had, it's been a couple of years since I've been in there, but I'd imagine they still have a very massive uh, front desk area entrance to the hotel and casino, pushing through those doors and, and, and leaving. And that and the photo that you just referenced is, is it. So yeah, in, in 1996, that was the technology to the extent. Any other cameras, generally in the casino are, are facing where the money is they're facing the, the tables and they're looking for cheaters now yeah i mean you know you're surprised that they're not the cameras aren't in the bathroom these days <laughs> well it's funny because i have been in i've stayed at that the mgm grand several times and i was the first reporter to broadcast that video at the mgm grand and one thing that is distressing about it it's really not shot at a very good angle at all but you know, that was, again, 27 years ago. What impact, we, we talked earlier a bit about the interviews that people have done, perhaps some, you know, with Keefe self-incriminating, but also with some of the witnesses. What impact do you think it will have, if any, that at least one documentary, you, it used witness statements and all of that, do you see that as being an asset to the defense or the prosecution? It's hard to tell because we're dealing with so many missing facts. But on its face, just like I said earlier, when you asked what advice would I be giving Mr. Davis, and like any client, shut your mouth. Three words, shut your mouth. But it's human nature to try to speak and talk your way out of things, whether it's a traffic ticket or a murder case we're all guilty of it. And no matter how sophisticated a client is or how much of a repeat client is, it's very difficult for them to do that in those precious situations because law enforcement is trained to elicit information out of you, to confuse you, to twist words, and to, to, to get what they want. Um, and so just on its face, him speaking in any context, a proper, a interview, a book is, something that is not beneficial to the defense. But like I tell all my clients, when we have that, I say, listen, I would rather you just been quiet. But unfortunately uh, for me, 90 plus percent of my cases, my clients speak to some extent. So it's nothing that we're not used to. And I'm sure it's nothing that his defense team uh, won't be ready for. Well, what's unusual about this, though, the actual case files were exploited the witness statements and so on to make a documentary and to have a self-published book and later a series. But this was based on another investigation that 
actually of Biggie's murder that intersected Las Vegas Metro. And then this uh, individual retired and took home those tapes and then used the tapes and the witness statements and all, you know, the case file for making the, you know, a book, making a documentary and later a series. And I just wondered how much that was discovery in advance, giving information about what would normally be released in discovery, but to the world. Sure. Another thing that just came to my head when you're talking about that, you know, there could be an argument for some sort, some sort of tainting of evidence or spoilation or putting ideas and things in, in witnesses' heads. I mean, that's why law enforcement continually says, you know, we don't have anything to say at this time. This is an ongoing investigation. This is an ongoing investigation. You hear that all the time, TVs, movies, reality. And the reason for that is they don't want to release certain pieces of evidence or statements because at a later time, defense counsel can come in and say, well, you know, that they, they, that they weren't there. They just heard that on, you know, the eight o'clock news. And so that certainly would be an angle that I would explore. What's Keefe's life like now? Because I know when we were in communication the day there was the indictment, you were down at the Clark County Detention Center. So can you give me a sense of what the detention center is like, what his life may be like? Is he in segregation because he's a well-known inmate? Break it down. I'd, ima I'd imagine he's in protective custody, um, which is not a fun place to be. Because uh, uh, why not? You to look at uh, because you're basically on lockdown. I mean, you don't get as many freedoms as as you know having an open cell and and things of that nature. Uh, so first and foremost, is is daily freedom is not there. I remember a good example is Floyd Mayweather when he had a, a criminal issue. I think some alleged domestic violence a while back. And, Want to say I'm speculating here, but a ballpark about 10 years or so ago, and his attorneys had to file a motion to not have him segregated because he couldn't exercise and do all these proper things. So, just from a mental and physical standpoint, it's got to be tough. Um, but the whole purpose of being in jail or the whole purpose of the jail, their job is to make sure that they're they're safe, that, that the things that you commonly hear about in jail, people being beat, beat up, bullied, raped. Etc. don't happen because if they don't protect those inmates to a certain extent, then they can be open for a lawsuit. So they're going to probably have to put him in segregation away from everybody else because here's the thing, right? Everybody that's in that jail is likely going to think have him as a target because just like when, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and these other high profile people were in there, if you're the guy that hurt some, you know, famous person, then in their twisted minds, then that gives them additional street cred. And so they're going to put him away for his his safety and, and, and his well-being. I mean, I have clients that are awaiting sentencing to go up to actual prison on a case. And they're like, I can't wait to get out of here as far as county jail is concerned. You have a lot more freedoms in prison. Uh, and obviously, mm -hmm. Mr. Davis' goal is to avoid prison. But no, being in a detention center is not fun. Uh, I know that sounds silly to say out loud, but... Uh, uh, it's not a pleasurable place to be in the slightest. It's punishment. And in terms of gangs, because it was my understanding, dating back to 27 years ago when I first did the story, it's very common for L.A. gangs to go to Las Vegas to party, hang out, 
especially love Mike Tyson. So are the jails equipped to deal with Crips and Bloods? Any well, special yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, they have classifications and of gang members all day. I mean, that's common that the jails are filled with gang members or affiliates of gang members, and even more so when you get to prison because they want to attempt to avoid people from clicking up and, and joining groups. So affiliation is definitely on the radar of the um, individuals that are going to be responsible for Mr. Davis's safety and custody at the Clark County Detention Center. But again, you, you think he's probably going to be segregated altogether? I believe so, as, as much as humanly possible. Is there anything that, well, just for sure, I want to ask, what should we look for next? I know the arraignment's coming up October 19th. Anything else? I think everyone just wants to figure out uh, who's going to be the defense attorney or attorneys. Uh, other than that, not too much should happen until that court date. So anything else you'd like to ask, add that I haven't asked you? No, I think we summed it up. It's it's a very, very interesting case for anyone involved, whether you're a fan of Tupac or Biggie or hip hop music in general, pop culture, the law, law enforcement, just history. I mean, this is a significant uh, uh, American culture and we're going to be along for a wild ride here. I'm Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case, was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lennon Ozizwe. That's me. I also created the artwork and music. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative consultant emeritus. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com.